So, Mark. Yes? As we both know, 2022 was a huge year for donkeys in movies. (sighs) You're already going to make me sad right at the top of the episode. Which donkey are you thinking about? Which donkey are you thinking about that... I'm thinking about multiple donkeys! I know, but I'm thinking about one very special little mini donkey. I, I don't know what donkey you're talking about. Do you not know? About. Jenny from Banshees of Inishirin. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Jenny, a very sweet donkey, Colin Farrell's only true friend. <laughs> yeah, that's the donkey that sticks out the most to me. I would say she's my number one donkey for the year. There is also Eo, the donkey from the Polish movie Eo. Yeah, did not watch that one. It's probably going to be an Oscar nominee. Um, it's a movie <laughs> from the donkey's perspective about all the horrible things that happen to animals because we are mean to animals. Okay, sounds like a uh, PETA award-winning film. I suspect that it will do well at this year's Oscats. I couldn't remember the name. I'm glad you were able to pull that out. And then, of course, in Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio, all the kids go to Pleasure Island and get turned into donkeys. Oh, yeah. I didn't want to taint the Pinocchio brand before watching The Good (laughs) Pinocchio, so I put that off. I mean, I at least will be talking about The Good Pinocchio later on in this episode, and... I it is almost impossible well. for me to talk about that movie without talking about the Zemeckis one, because seeing two filmmakers within like two months of each other adapt the same story with wildly different effect. Uh, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is in my top 10. Of the 114 movies from 2022 that I watched, I have the Robert Zemeckis Pinocchio on Disney Plus at 114th. That bad. I have it as the single worst movie I saw last year. Oh my god, I didn't know it would be that bad, because you, you sh- you're you kind of a Zemeckis apologist for some of his bad stuff. I am. This movie is just reprehensible. Oh, I'm excited to talk about that, because I also have Pinocchio on my list. Okay, yeah. After we talk about our top tens, I will run through my bottom ten, which is mostly movies that bored me. I mean, there's not. I personally think a bad movie that isn't boring is better than a boring movie. Right. Amsterdam is a mess, but I was interested most of the time. I still didn't watch it, but hearing that Taylor Swift gets pushed in front of a car at a certain point after hearing the Taylor Swift sounds on TikTok for the umpteenth time, I was like, hmm, maybe I should watch Amsterdam. It is not supposed to be. It is genuinely kind of funny when it happens. Because it's so abrupt. Yeah, I mean, because Taylor Swift and Carly Rae Jepsen released albums on the same day. So the way I found out this was real is someone who's like switching from midnights to the loneliest time. And then did the video of Taylor Swift getting pushed in front of a car. Oh, man. There were a lot of good mysteries this year and Amsterdam was not one of them. Yeah. 2022. A year with a lot of movies. Yeah, a lot of movies and some fun stuff happening in the movies. Like I said, a lot of mysteries. It really, for me, was the return of, like, just one great theatrical experience after another with, like, people in the theaters. So in the spirit of what lots of people actually saw, I thought we would start our episode, as we usually do at the start of a year, by looking back at the previous one and asking Mark, who saw many fewer movies than I do, to determine the top 10 movies at the North American box office. Well, Transformers Rise of the Beasts... So that's 2023. ...comes out this year, so it will not make the list. Most anticipated release, I'm sure. And unfortunately, I think will be in the top 10 of the box office for next year. Look, Bumblebee was pretty good. I finally saw the trailer I do like Anthony Ramos. The Beasts look kind of cool. Look, it's not going to be worse than some of the movies that I saw this year. Like... 
It will be like better. Robert Zemeckis's Pinocchio. <laughs> Robert Zemeckis's Pinocchio. Um, but yeah, okay, Mark. So what do you, what do you think? Good Top Lord. ten movies at the North American box office is number one. Uh, Black Panther, Wakanda, Forever. Wakanda Forever is number two. Okay. Currently, I think it will not end up that way when we are several months from now. Well, I mean, oh, in terms of just making the most money, if we count twenty twenty two releases, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you think Way of the Water will surpass it? Avatar The Way of Water is currently at 7th. The way it is making money, it will at least come in 4th, and I think probably finish 2nd. Okay. Um, hmm. I still haven't seen it, because 3 hours and 15 minutes is a big commitment to um, what I've heard described as turning the noble savagery up. Look, I'll, I'll save my Avatar thoughts for later, because I will be talking about Avatar The Way of Water later. Yeah. But I disagree with that. Okay. I think the only way you would come in with that opinion is if you were pretty anti-Avatar. Yeah, which a lot of people are. Yeah, I think a lot of those people haven't seen Avatar in a long time. Yeah. Um. Okay. I'm like, did any other Marvel movies come out this year? They did. Um. The other Marvel movies oh, are at number. Wait, three. Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is at number three. Okay. And there's one other that's at number eight, right below Avatar. Is. The number one not a Marvel movie? The number one movie is not a Marvel movie. Is it a DC movie? It is not a DC movie. There are two DC movies in the top ten. Uh, Which DC movies came out this year? Not Wonder Woman. Or did that come out this year? No, Wonder Woman was 2020. Okay, Jesus. I ta- The reason this game has gotten so hard is because I've lost all concept of time. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, ever since 2019, I just can't keep track of what year anything happens. All right, let's start let's start giving you some hints. All right, number 10. Yeah. It's a DC movie whose star is currently at war with the studio. Is it The Batman? It is not The Batman. The Batman's number 6. Okay. Wait, who's at war with the studio? Um, um this star has been releasing data to try to convince people the movie was not a oh, loser. Oh, Hen- was Henry Cavill? No, Henry Cavill. Is it he in the also credit scene of this movie? Okay. Isn't he also at war with the studio? Uh, much less so. Okay. But Henry Cavill appears in a post credit scene teasing a sequel that the studio is quite firm will not happen. The Flash? No, The Flash is <laughs> theoretically coming out in 2023. Um, I don't know. Which one is... Th- Who's at war with DC? Well, it's, I'm surprised you're not getting this because, you know, the most beloved superhero character of all time is, of course, Black Adam. Oh, uh, yes. Okay, I forgot about this whole thing. I kind of pushed it down. I'm sick of The Rock and attempt to ignore him. That's a good call. Look, I've said it before, I'll say it again. This is not a joke. I really enjoyed Black Adam during the parts of the movie that I forgot he was in it. One of the most scathing critiques there could be. It is genuinely true. He would show up again on screen and I'd go, oh right, Black Adam is in this. Yeah. Speaking of DC, real quick, uh, Shazam 2. Made a terrible Fury choice. Fury of the Gods. If they wanted me to not support the villains by casting Lucy Liu and Helen Mirren. Because I see the trailer and I think they should win. DC did this big pushback of their movies. Like Shazam 2 was supposed to be out this fall. Aquaman was supposed to be out in December. They pushed all their stuff back. So I have been seeing that Shazam trailer for like eight months. I'm incredibly sick of it. Is that when you go to the bathroom? It is when I go to the bathroom. It is literally... When I saw the movie we're talking about today, I went to the bathroom the minute I heard the music start for the Shazam trailer. Yep. We all but, have those trailers. 
The one smart thing it has going is right at the point I absolutely lose all patience with that trailer, it starts showing me Rachel Zegler. And I'm like, you, you did entice me back in a little bit. Yeah. Um, okay. All right, so number 10, Black Adam. Uh, by the way, I have seen every movie in the top 10. Uh, number nine, it's also a sequel. It's a, a CGI lead with a human supporting cast. Sonic 2. It is Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Suzanne got me the new Sonic open world game for Christmas. Didn't know that was a thing. We'll report back. Please do. Uh, number eight is the Marvel movie that you have not gotten. Um, it's possibly, along with Robert Zemeckis' Pinocchio, the movie I loathed the most this year. Whoa. I think it has outright contempt oh, for its audience. Thor, Love and Thunder. Thor, Love and Thunder. Seems to hate itself for existing. Number seven is Avatar The Way of Water. Number six is The Batman. Number five is an animated sequel to a prequel. Animated sequel to a prequel? Is it this movie? <laughs> it is not this movie. <laughs> Does Puss in Boots the last... Oh, it must take place after Shrek. Puss in Boots the Last Wish is currently 28th. I mean, it came out last week and is doing bad, I think. No, it's doing all right. It's been number two every weekend behind Avatar. But also, its first weekend of release, a massive storm hit the United States, which is why this episode is coming out late. Oh, yes. And... Christmas was during the weekend, so not a lot of people went to the movies. Apologies, audience, for the delay release on this. I was without running water. And I had too much water. My apartment <laughs> flooded. Will stole all of the city of Asheville's water, and every movie theater was shut down as a result of the lack of water, because they all seemed to be in South Asheville. And uh, my apartment flooded. So I have only seen Avatar once, which was not my plan. Okay. Number five is an animated sequel to a prequel. Animated sequel to a prequel. Minions Rise of Gru. Minions the Rise of Gru. I have seen Despicable Me number one and Minions the Rise of Gru. A movie in which I would argue Gru does not rise. <laughs> Again, the problem here is that I just like can't remember what movies came out this year. Were you aware of the gentle minions trend? No. This was like the teens, I assume it was a TikTok thing, were dressing up in suits to go and see the Minions movie. And then in some places we're getting unruly in the process. I think that part was mostly in the UK where they were like maybe throwing stuff. I did see teens in suits when I saw the movie. What a weird era we live in where this is like a thing yeah. that can just happen. And this is also one of those things where like you discover that, again, I've seen the first Despicable Me and Minions 2. So I have no strong relationship with this franchise. But people have relationships with individual Minions. Like I was seeing people I respect on the internet being like, Bob, of course, just gets me every time. And I'm like, I, the Minions seem barely distinct to me. I I don't get it. The Minions is just like a cultural black hole that I can't engage yeah. with. Uh, number four, I also saw uh, this movie stinks. We've talked about it on the show. We didn't do an episode on we it. We didn't do an episode on okay. it, though. We just talked about it. We especially talked about its marketing, which I think is bizarre. Hmm. This sounds familiar. We really fixated on the idea that they did not advertise the movie's title. Oh, Jurassic Park Dominion. Jurassic World Dominion. Jurassic yeah. World Dominion. So that came in fourth. It made $376 million in the US and Canada. Number three is Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, a movie that is much better than people give it credit for. Number two is Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And number one, Mark, you still have not gotten. How do I not know the number one movie? This is embarrassing. This movie played all summer long, and then they re-released it in December, and I went to see it again in December and was like, yep, still great. Morbius. It is not Morbius. <laughs> 
which I did see. <laughs> Morbius is a movie that doesn't end, it just stops. <laughs> a movie that got memed back into theaters to lose even more money. Very funny. I've pro- What is it? I've probably seen it. You have not, oh. which is a shame because it's really good, and I do think you would like it. <sighs> I, uh, 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 what's it about? We did an episode tying into its release. Um, so we did, it's a sequel then. Yes. Oh, Top Gun Maverick. It is Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. I'm currently in a very, um, turned off by military phase because my parents started watching Top Gun and I was like, wow, I have no interest. I mean, I think that is fair. Top Gun Maverick is like head and shoulders better than the original it's like kind of astonishing yeah i just it's not even like the quality of the movie i just don't really want to see american military planes flying around that's fair it's like if it gets nominated slash when it gets nominated for best picture i will try and bite the bullet and watch it but yeah also like that's gonna be a fun one for us to do on our oscars episode because the romance of that is just like tom cruise and jennifer connelly just like on a boat is it wait is jennifer connelly in the first one no. Okay. New new romance. Yeah, new romance that, like, a bunch of my students were, like, weirdly annoyed about. They were like, we don't know who this person is. Who'd she come from? And one student was like, that's Viper's daughter. And they were like, oh. And I'm like, no, she's just a person. It's been 30 years. He met other people. <laughs> yeah, it's... I, I get it. Is there any acknowledgement of the past relationship? Oh, maybe they mention it in passing, but, like, they just come in and they're like, this is a relationship that has existed before. They're striking it up again. It's just like, this is just an adult relationship. Like... Yeah, teens don't really understand that. Top Gun Maverick is like a blockbuster that I think everybody can enjoy, but it is also like a movie about grown-up relationships. I so appreciated it. I think it's incredible. I mean, Indiana Jones, it's not like you know who Marion is, but they clearly have an established relationship, which is one that is unfortunate when yeah. you think about I mean, they do allude to that in dialogue. Yeah. Um. Okay. So, oh, wait, that was number one. <laughs> That was number one. That's our that's our, that's top, our 10 top ten at the North American box office. I think Avatar will continue to rise, just like as Gru. it should, because it's great. Yes, just like Gru, it will rise. It will surpass Gru. I think. Just like Gru, um, wow. It'll probably surpass Gru by the time this episode comes out. I don't think any of the top ten box office are in my top ten movies, personally. Um, that is not true for me. Yes, I can imagine. But I'm assuming number 11 is Elvis, and I'm assuming that's your number one. <laughs> yes, number one film of the year. No, I was just glad I saw enough movies to cut Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder that with you. Like, we see some dumb stuff, and I'm like, mm, <laughs> will Mark see enough? Yes. It helps that I had COVID and was able to watch some 2022 releases. And, of course, the other thing slowing you down is that this is the year you had to say marry me. I did have to say marry me. I didn't get to Tar because it was only it was a twenty dollar rental. Still, Tar is still playing in DC. If you if you go to the landmark, is it really? Oh, okay. at East Street Cinema, they're still showing it every day. Yeah, I, I can't bite the bullet to do a twenty dollar rental when I assume they'll probably cut it to four before the Oscars. Yeah, um, I might see Tar tomorrow. TBD. Tar tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but we got a lot to do today. We have a lot to do. Let's get started. We're finally addressing a hole in our DreamWorks canon, which is the first ever released Puss in Boots movie. Let's dive in. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the very most important issue facing our world, which is, did DreamWorks make a Puss in Boots movie? 
And is it good? Also, where the f*** is Christopher Walken? And why wasn't he in this movie? <laughs> also, are people dateable, cats dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And as we've said, this week we are starting the new year with a milestone release for our show. DreamWorks Animation's brand new feature film, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish. Is this our first in theaters DreamWorks episode? It is because we did not see Abominable. No, we did not. <laughs> We've been doing this show for five years. There must have been more DreamWorks releases in theaters that we didn't see. Yeah, there was the Boss Baby sequel. There was the Spirit sequel. There was the Bad oh, Guys. It was the sequels, yes. You did see the Bad Guys. Bad Guys, kind of good. I know. I just don't believe it. The Bad Guys anchoring. Well, not anchoring, but starting off strong in the new DreamWorks opening logo title oh yes yeah that's true yeah okay yeah we got to talk about that i just want to say like as far as i'm concerned the new dreamworks animation style is kind of two for two as far as i'm concerned like bad guys pretty good puss in boots pretty good i like the mix i like the fight scenes being different dreamworks had and we've hit them for this so many times when we cover the old stuff had just the most hideous looking animation for so long. And like every once in a while you get like a how to train your dragon that looked really good. They had Roger Deakins helping with the lighting and stuff. The Crudes came out. The Crudes, of course, is an artistic masterpiece. But so much of the stuff, they just looked like garbage. And now they feel like the only studio that saw Spider-Verse and said, holy cow, something different is possible. And like totally reoriented. Yeah, it really, it feels like they are trying to start a new chapter in animation. And I read a lot of really cool interviews with some of the people who worked on this movie where they talked about that. They talked about like how it involves like drawing 2D effects on top of the CG elements, reducing the frame rate during action sequences to make it more dynamic. I mean, that opening fight scene with like the giant tree dude is some of the most thrilling action animation I've seen in a long time. It's really cool. And the Switch... Like, when the giant wakes up and is in a completely different style than Puss in Boots and all the people. Also, DreamWorks finally figured out how to make people look like humans. Right, and part of it is by trying to get away from that, like, globby CG shape. Yeah. I'm really impressed with what they're doing in terms of animation, and I'm really excited by it. While maintaining a distinct DreamWorks style. Yeah, it, it feels like an evolution, a dramatic evolution. Yeah. It doesn't feel like they're just trying to copy Pixar. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about sort of what they're going to be doing going forward if they keep experimenting with animation style and then hopefully that drives them to experiment more with story as well. When did Comcast buy DreamWorks? Well, there's a layer in between because Comcast owns Universal. Oh, yes. And then, okay, I forgot about the Universal owning DreamWorks. Yeah. I will say also talking about the bad guys and Puss in Boots in particular... I have been really impressed with DreamWorks marketing this past year, where I think they've gotten really good at cutting trailers that feel like modern trailers, the kind that annoys us, where it feels like it's giving too much of the story. Yeah, I did not like the Bad Guys trailer, though. Well, my point is, what I'm getting at is, I think they've gotten good at cutting a trailer that looks like what the audience expects a trailer to look like, without actually telling you much of what happens in the movie. Yeah. Like, the plot of the bad guys is not that similar to the plot that is summarized in the trailer. Oh, yeah. And I guess the plot of this is not that unexpected, but it's what it is. Like, he's trying to make a wish and it's an adventure film. 
Right, but like a lot of the like character stuff is not in there, and especially what's not in there is the best part of this movie, which is the big bad wolf. He's creepy. <laughs> he is scary. I did not like when the wolf showed up. I mean, I liked it because it was good, but it was freaky. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should talk a little bit about sort of our experiences seeing Puss in Boots The Last Wish, our general impressions of it. You saw this movie today. I saw it before Christmas, so I'm going to be working a little more off of memory. But I liked this movie pretty well. I especially liked the characterization of Puss as, like, the daring-do adventurer. People are singing songs about him as a hero who then, like is suddenly facing death. And it's the literal embodiment of death as the big bad wolf, who is terrifyingly animated with these glowing red eyes. And I really enjoyed all of that. And then I just had no interest in Goldilocks or especially in the John Mulaney character. Yeah. Honestly, if they had stuck to one of those, like, what's the opposite? What's a deuteragonist for uh, antagonist? Uh, I don't know. If they had just stuck to one of those... I feel like it would be better because it is like too many. It's the Spider-Man three problem. Yeah. I also just like, again, I, I kind of have nothing to say about the John Mulaney character. I find him annoying and kind of boring and I'm never that interested in what's going on with him. The Goldilocks thing almost feels like it's playing to a different audience than the wolf is. The wolf is genuinely scary. And I imagine frightened. Someone, I saw this in a pretty crowded theater on December 23rd. There were a lot of kids there. I imagine the wolf, frightened a lot of those children i just think that like the concept of death becoming literal was not what i expected and creepy it's so good the goldilocks thing feels like it is playing towards that kid audience yeah it's like they try to balance out the true adult fear of facing down death as you age with something for kids to latch on to Right, and it feels a little incongruous where, like, I feel like you could get that story idea of, like, wanting to belong and wanting a family from the Harvey Guillen character, the little therapy dog. Yeah, because it really was, like, the same the same character. And I think arc. doing it with that character grounds the story more tightly around Puss. Mm-hmm. And it makes the decision about, like, how much of a family to be a story that is anchored around Puss deciding whether or not to stay with him, as opposed to, like, this other group of characters that are not as fleshed out. I mean, basically what they could have done with Goldilocks and the three bears is not had them go into the forest. And I feel like they wouldn't have overstayed their welcome. They didn't need a plot. The concept alone of Goldilocks joining the three bears to be a crime family, you can leave it at that. And then like, you can do more with them as like a short on the home video release. Yeah. Because once they get into the woods, I lost interest in, have I didn't feel the need for them to be chased. The woods and their emotions could have been enough of adversaries. Right, that's a compelling idea, that the map changes based on who is doing the most hunting for it, and it reflects their fears. Yeah, so that they didn't need the people chasing after them. They could have just left the John Mulaney and the three bears in the background, or in the, you know, first half, and I don't think I would have disliked them as much. And part of it is because, like, the wolf is such a compelling villain that anytime you're with someone else, you're like, no, get them out of here. Right. I do want to shout out one of my, I think my favorite sequence in this movie was going through all of his deaths. (laughs) Very funny. Because I I broke at a certain point and did laugh out loud. I don't remember which one. I think maybe it was the drunk St. Patrick's Day parade cat. It is funny where, like, every one of those is pretty good. Yeah. And then in succession, they really play off each other well. 
it's also just a great premise, right? That the reason Puss in Boots is able to be this daring do hero is because death does not stop him. But now then, like, he is no longer immortal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he has to face mortality for the first time and can no longer laugh in the face of death. It, it's a grown-up idea. You know, that's again where I'm kind of with this movie. I'm more frustrated with it than I might be because I see the way it's so close to being great. Yeah. It is still by far the best DreamWorks I've seen in a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic. Hey, look, it, this episode's coming out this week. Puss in Boots is still number two at the box office. There is no family movie coming out for months. So go see Puss in Boots. It's going to play like Lyle Lyle Crocodile, where Lyle stayed in theaters for like three months because there was no competition. Yeah. I also want to shout out Salma Hayek real quick. <laughs> Credited with her uh, married name also. Yeah. Which was, I don't think I've seen before. I had not seen that before. But I guess we'll probably see it again when we talk uh, Magic Mike 2. Magic Mike 3, rather. Yes. I was like, she's not in that. Biggest twist of this movie. Artemis from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia was a voice actor in this movie. Oh, really? Yeah. The Serpent Sisters were Betsy Sodaro and Artemis Pimdani. Oh, okay. Good for them. I mean, look, the movie, it is a DreamWorks movie, so it has a stacked cast. Yes. But it's just hilarious to pick... Two actors that exclusively do things that are inappropriate for children. Yeah, I mean, that's where you figure just the people making the movie were having a good time. Yeah. So speaking of uh, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, which is, of course, the first ever feature film from DreamWorks based on the Puss in Boots character played by Antonia Banderas in Shrek 2, 3, 4. They did spend a while in development on a Puss in Boots movie that was scheduled to come out in 2011. But as we discussed on our Shrek episode, it never came out. Yeah. There is a, like, Mandela effect thing where some people remember seeing that movie. Sometimes they tweeted us, hashtag I've seen Puss in Boots. They are wrong, and I pity them, but they're fools and they should be ashamed. It was interesting to name your first release The Last Wish and make it about facing mortality. That feels like a sequel storyline. It does. Well, of course, you know, there there was a, a Netflix Puss in Boots show because, like, just about every DreamWorks thing has been turned into a Netflix series. Ah, yes. So, like, I don't know, I haven't seen that show, so it it could be that this is building on something from the show. I assume, like, maybe the Salma Hayek character had been in it before. Some of the press that I saw talked about her returning to the character. Yeah, they really um introduce her like a character you should know. Yeah, and like, look, some of that might just be confidence in the filmmaking. They're like, people will pick it up the way that you introduce Jennifer Connelly in Top Gun Maverick. Fair enough. But I, I do think she had played the role somewhere before, I assume on Netflix. Uh, Netflix. Those Netflix shows. Those Netflix shows. Spirit Untamed, All Hail King Julian. There's a new Kung Fu Panda show that came out last year. There was someone who posted a uh, TikTok that was like, Madagascar was the height of comedy in film. And I was like, you need to rewatch it as an adult because you will not stand by that take. Yeah, that movie is rough. But, uh,. This movie is directed by a guy who has been with DreamWorks for a long time. His name's Joel Crawford. And he was a story artist at DreamWorks going all the way back to B-Movie. So for like 15 years, he was working as an artist there. He directed Trolls Holiday, the Trolls Christmas special. Okay. And The Croods 2, which we have not seen. No. But we maybe should. It's also co-directed by Yanuel Mercado. This movie was announced about 10 years ago. So around the time that the first Puss in Boots movie, they were going to make I guess fell apart, or maybe they pulled a backer on it. But at that point, 
Guillermo del Toro was still working with DreamWorks. He was involved in the early development. At that point, they were very clear, like, this is going to be an adventure movie. And for a while, it was called Puss in Boots, Nine Lives, and Forty Thieves. So probably keeping some of the, like, Nine Lives element that works its way into the final version, but definitely a different story there. At that point, it was set for release in 2018, but it was pulled from the schedule in 2015. So this thing, like, has been going through waves of development for a long time. It was developed by Bob Parachetti for a while, who had co-directed Spider-Verse. So he had DreamWorks connections going back to, like, Shrek 2 and Monsters vs. Aliens, but then co-directs Spider-Verse, which is a huge deal, oversees it during the first year of the pandemic, so really helping to set the tone for the new DreamWorks animation style. He ultimately left it, and the Crawford and Mercado weren't announced as directors until March of 2021. So they're overseeing a lot of, like, the post-production on the movie. Mm -hmm. A lot of the animation would have been done by then. And I do think, like we've been saying, the animation is really the standout here. It's DreamWorks after the bad guys, which did well, but is a much smaller stage than a Shrek spinoff. Really announcing, like, we're doing something different now. Pay attention to us. Mm -hmm. I read an interview with the production designer, Nate Rag, that he did with Animation Magazine. And he talked about how, and this gets at another thing we've said about DreamWorks, and at the movies we liked more, like Dragon and Crude's about being liberated by a lack of emphasis on pop culture references. Oh my god, there was none. I was so happy. The quote, he, he said, We got to go deeper into the Shrek fairy tale world and expand on that without there having to be a joke on a popular musician or celebrity. And I'm like, yeah, that's what's working here. Yeah, I, like, didn't really realize that. That that was, like... You don't miss it. Missing, because you don't care. Because that doesn't do well in family animation because you want it to be something kids buy on DVD to watch over and over. Or like, you know, you got to keep up your Peacock subscription. Yeah. That's like, I mean, the the tweet joke in Moana is one of the things I remember most because it made me so angry. It's the worst thing in the entire movie. Yeah. Like these, the jokes just make everyone unhappy. Yeah, that and the, like, Maui has all the worst lines because he has that and he has the line about, like, you're definitely a princess. You have an animal sidekick and you talk to oh water God, or whatever. I forgot about that, too. Those are, it's the single worst moments in a movie that I really like are when it's playing, like, a DreamWorks movie. Yeah. But DreamWorks is different now. Yeah, I mean... <sighs> I feel so invested in this. Like, and we started it kind of as a joke of, like, forcing ourselves to watch bad movies, which we still do sometimes. But now I'm, like, so invested in DreamWorks' success. I know. I, like, really hope that it continues to be good it feels like a victory for us a little bit i know because it will make us dread watching the new stuff less yeah i do think maybe next year for christmas we either do one or several episodes on dreamworks holiday specials yeah aren't they all really short yeah so like we could do a couple of them in one episode we do like mary madagascar shrek the halls oh my god (laughs) shrek (laughs) the halls honestly it's pretty good it's a great title it's a great title um, speaking of DreamWorks stuff, uh, new DreamWorks logo. We got to talk about that. I like it. It's okay. It's fine. I think it's, I mean, obviously the old one of him fishing is better. I think that like is basically a perfect logo of just the kid fishing for dreams, like sitting on the moon. I think it rocks. No, it's great. But I understand why they changed it, because they're kind of trying to make DreamWorks animation a new thing. And I think if they're doing a refresh, it could be worse. I hope they, like, keep the old one and go back to it. 
they sound pretty gung-ho about this one. Like, the, the heads of the studio were giving interviews about how, like, this is their look going forward with, like, the more animated kid on the moon and then, like, going through the worlds of DreamWorks. And they've been talking about how it's, like, a modular thing, so they have, like, other planets of characters that they can pop in and, like, pull out old ones. They're like, Shrek always stays, but anything else we can swap. Yeah. I don't know. I get the impulse behind it. It's not the worst of the changes because at least they didn't make it some like pared down, soulless. Flat. You're talking about Orion and Petco and like Pepsi's, all those logo rebrand disasters. What I what I don't like about the new DreamWorks one is it feels like a commercial. Yeah, that's true. Whereas like the old one, it felt like a tone setter. I yeah. I obviously prefer the old one, and I will miss that because it is much better. It's just, I was worried it would be worse. And, you know, with DreamWorks, I've learned to accept when things are better than expected, that is good enough because they have produced Turbo. I mean, that is fair. We, we have seen Turbo. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at with it. The old DreamWorks logo is one of the best logos. Yeah, I it, like, also incredible to be that good being such a late one, right? DreamWorks is this, like, latecomer to the party of studio filmmaking and ultimately fails. Yeah, true. But in the process, created a really great-looking logo. Imagine if they swapped in the Prince of Egypt as one of the little people waving. You know, Prince of Egypt, one of the ones that has not had a TV show, and there's something there. Maybe maybe if they were all vegetables. <laughs> But just imagine if they, like, swooped by, and it's just Ramses and Moses waving. That would be hilarious, and I would love it. I'm into it. I think we'll see a Sinbad one before we see the Prince of Egypt. I mean, true. Sinbad's one of those properties they could revive. Prince of Egypt, there's not really much else you can do there. Yeah. Oh, Sinbad. That one was bad? I don't remember, honestly. It was not good. It was not good. You're not remembering it because we watched it in 2020. Yeah, true enough. That's the movie that almost bankrupted the studio. It's uh, so close. So, I mean, hopefully they roll back around and make good movies, but if it had just died, we wouldn't have had B-movie to watch. Right. And then Jerry Seinfeld would have done nothing between the end of his show and comedians in cars getting coffee. It's the one thing he did in that whole, like, 10-year period. Is it really? Yeah. Uh, He guest starred on an episode of 30 Rock. Okay, that barely counts. A pretty solid episode. Oh, it's a good episode, sure. Seinfeld vision. Um, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, like we said earlier, it's it's doing pretty well. It's made $66 million in North America so far. It's come in second both weekends of its release behind Avatar The Way of Water. And like Avatar, it increased its box office percentage in its second weekend because the first weekend was terrible weather in the U.S. and Christmas. They got a bit screwed. It is yeah. true. But so they're doing all right. They got a Golden Globe nomination for Best Animated Feature. It will probably get an Oscar nomination, but those haven't happened yet, so we'll see. Yeah, it'll probably get an animation. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to win, but it'll probably get a nomination. It's one of the better animated movies of the year. Yeah, obviously it will not win, because we know no. what will win. <laughs> it's very clear. Yeah. And the spoiler would be Turning Red. It's it's just, like, it's just going to be Pinocchio. And... You know, I was listening to the This Hot Oscar Buzz end of your mailbag episode the other day, and they were saying the smartest thing Netflix did was put Guillermo del Toro's name in front of that movie because Academy voters do not respect animation. We know this. They tell us it every year. 
But they do respect Guillermo del Toro. Yes. And putting his name at the front of the movie is only going to help it get votes. It also makes it stand out from the two other Pinocchio movies that came out this year. Did the Pauly Shore one come out this year? I thought it was last year. I think it was this year, but I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure that was 2021. And then there was the Roberto Benigni one in 2019. Hold on, I have to look this up. Yeah, that was 2021. Yeah, we had Benini, Shore, Zemeckis, Del Toro. The four greats. Mount Rushmore. Oh my god. I can't believe that this movie exists. Is it... Wait, is this like a Polish movie that they redubbed? Yeah, it's like not a real movie. Yeah. The fact that Lionsgate was like making TikToks and making fun of the movie. Because they correctly guessed that that would get more people to see it. Yes, but I... It would feel terrible if I was involved in the movie. It also was annoying for me because I was trying to recommend to my students that they watch the Del Toro Pinocchio. I was like, this new Pinocchio movie is really good. And they were like, oh, the one where he's like, oh, dad. I'm like, no, that movie came out a year and a half ago. Nobody is talking about it. Yeah. (laughs) Ugh, what a time. I'm trying to introduce you to art. Wow. That, uh, the storm already has a Wikipedia page. Sorry, which storm? The uh, storm that caused the opening to oh, be really? low. It has, a, it has a Wikipedia page? Yeah, the December 2022 North American Winter Storm. I don't know if it needs a Wikipedia page. I say, as the architect of, like, 15 useless Wikipedia pages. Yeah. But uh, let me tell you, those AARP nominations, they came out, like, four weeks earlier than I expected. So I had to quickly, like burn a bunch of free periods, and instead of lesson planning, I had to get Wikipedia updated. This is a long Wikipedia page, too. The Southwest Meltdown also has its own Wikipedia page now. That should maybe be collapsed into the same one, unless something big happens to Southwest. Yeah, sorry. You can cut that Um, distraction. There's been a lot going on. Again, we're sorry the episode is late, but we had no control over this. And uh, I think we should talk about the romance of Puss in Boots. Yes, because it was much more romantic than I was expecting. Yeah, the main plot is Puss in Boots has nine lives. Eight of them are gone, so the next time he dies, he's dead. The big bad wolf is death and is hunting him. And so Puss in Boots is trying to find a wishing star that fell to Earth so that he can wish for more lives. And he's being chased by Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Goldilocks wants to wish for a real family. And by John Mulaney as Big Jack Horner, who wants to wish for, I don't know, power. So it's like a chase adventure movie trying to get to this wishing star. But really, frankly, the best part of it, besides the Big Bad Wolf, is the romance. And we will discuss it in five points to help guide conversation. So I thought we would do these chronologically rather than in the order they appear in the movie. So our point number one is the incident at Santa Colomba. Give me the map. Trust me. Trust you? Like I did in Santa Colomba? Really? Santa Colomba? Si, Santa Colomba. Which they allude to repeatedly. I was a little worried that they were referencing something from a previous Puss in Boots narrative, like the TV show or something. But it's good. This clearly has just happened in the backstory of this movie. It's not necessary to know what happens. No. Because they also do explain it. Yeah. So at Santa Colomba, Puss, who of course is played by Antonio Banderas, as what was originally a joke and is now just how people think of Puss in Boots. Well, I think it is a Spanish story. No, it's a French story. Oh, it's a French story. It's like 18th century French story. But when Shrek 2 came out, they were like, it'd be funny to make the little swordsman Antonio Banderas because he is Zorro in movies. Yes. Like Antonio Banderas as a Spanish puss in boots is a Shrek pop culture reference that has now lost the pop culture context. Italian fairy tale. Oh, okay. 
I think the most famous version of it is French. Oh, the most famous version is the Charles Perrault version. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. But it's just funny that, like, that's just what people think Puss in Boots is now. When we all know that he is a shape-shifting cat-man creature played by Christopher Walken. That's right, in the classic Israeli canon fairy tales story. So anyway, at Santa Colomba, Puss in Boots, Antonio Banderas, was set to marry Kitty Softpaws, played by Salma Hayek. Who they seem to have a history together. Yeah, some kind of like romantic history. She's a thief. He's an adventurer. So there's some overlap in what they do. They're both very cool. But Puss in Boots did not show up for the wedding. He chickened out. He's also a thief, I think. Yeah, I guess that's true. And he did not go to the wedding. And later in the movie, we find out that Kitty Softpaws also did not show up to the wedding. Which is hilarious twist that I did not see coming, honestly. It is is funny, and also you just imagine being a guest where, like... (laughs) I know, I'd be so bad. You're a little on your toes, like, what if one of them doesn't show up? When both don't show up, you're like, do we still get food? (laughs) I know, my first thought would, that bar better stay open. Yeah, I mean, look, it's already there. They they signed a contract. There's a deposit. They already paid. But so, when the movie starts, Puss and Kitty are not in each other's lives, and when they are going to meet each other, in point number two, they're very suspicious of each other, because Puss feels bad that he ditched, and Kitty seems resentful of him. It is the one thing where it's like, Kitty's attitude early on seems like someone who would be mad that he ditched. But she also ditched. Yeah, but maybe she's just mad that they never reconnected. Yeah, he didn't go after her. Yeah, they never found each other. Because it sounds like it's been a while since Santa Colomba, too. Yes, it has. And so point number two, they are reunited. At this point, Puss has learned that he is on his last life and faked his own death. The wishing star is in here somewhere. Kitty, may I please see the map? No. Seriously? You won't let me hold it for even one minute? Nope. Not even for one second. Come on, Kitty. You've got to trust me. Wait, 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 what's what's going on with his eyes? Oh, they're getting bigger. Oh, kitty. You gotta trust him. Look at those eyes. Really? You call that cute? <gasps> oh, look at her. Well, yeah, he faked his own death. He moved into a crazy cat lady, which is a trope that is questionable slash problematic, but done kind of funny in this one because of her hatred of the health department specifically. Yeah. Her opening the door and saying there are no cats here with all of the cats around was funny. But that part dragged for me. They at least get it out of the way quickly. Yeah. That's a place where the trailer made it seem like that was a lot of the movie. And it's like five minutes. Yeah, he grows a depression beard, gets his name changed to Pickles, and meets a little puppy. But then he finds out about the map. And the wishing star, and he's like, oh my gosh, I could get more lives and then be my adventurous self and people could sing songs about me. Yes. So he overhears Goldilocks of the Three Bears talking about it. So he has to contend with them trying to steal the map as well as from Little Jack Horner. But then he runs into Kitty Softpaws. And they're not really getting along because Puss keeps referencing what happens at Santa Columba. And she's like, yeah, you jerk face. Which does she know? How does she find out that he also ran away? That's the thing where like this behavior doesn't totally map onto the reveal. And like the reveal that she didn't go is a compelling move in their relationship, but I don't know that it's consistent with how she behaves earlier in the movie. It's not, but it's just also a funny reveal. (laughs) Yes. And it's funny, like, his reaction to it then. Yeah. And so they basically are both holding the map 
like a finger trap and can't run away from each other. So they escape together and make their way to the dark forest. Yeah. And they have to work together and they agree they're going to work together to get to the wishing star. And then TBD. Point four, point three. Point three. They're working together. They're getting along. It's a nice time. They're building a nicer relationship again. Ready to get our wish back? Our wish. Well, I've been thinking if you play your cards right, maybe we could share the wish. Share the wish. They're making friends with the little dog. Perito. Who, because he is so guileless, his path to the wish is easy, so they have him leading the way. Look, it is a fun Harvey Guillen performance. At the end, honestly, if they had cut, like, Jack Horner and made him be the person that eats the eat me cookie and become really big, I also would have been on board. Would have been fun! Like, if it, the twist is that he's evil, or Perito is actually death, and the li- and the wolf is a bounty hunter. Or the Perito, like, the wolf is a shapeshifter, because death can come in many forms. Yeah. Again, they just could have cut little Jack Horner and expanded the wolf, or And, like, really cut, cut back on Goldilocks. Like, this movie's so close to being great. Yeah. And it does look great. Right. Which is half the battle for animation anyway, so, like, I'm not mad at it. Yeah, I enjoyed watching it. Yeah. I was not upset to spend $8 on a matinee. There you go. Mark, what was your last movie in theaters before this? Was it Batman Returns? Yes, it was. Great. It's That's been fair. a while. Um, all right, point number four, Puss ditches his friends. It's a betrayal. Except it's mostly just cowardice because he's literally running from death. He is, he is <laughs> running from death, which is unstoppable. But he decides, like, I've got to save myself. He takes the map and goes to try to get the wish for himself instead of working with his friends, including mm-hmm. Kitty Softpaws, who feels very betrayed. Yes. Uh, but then, point five, they have the big climactic battle. They team up. They rekindle their love. And they sail off together in a boat for new adventures, possibly new Shrek movies. All wearing powdered wigs. That's fine. Oh, yeah, because there's the running thread of, like, Puss constantly harassing the governor of the region that he's from, including stealing the guy's wigs. Because he is also Robin Hood in this. Uh, Will, real quick, do you find the romance believable? I mean, largely, yes. I think I've expressed the reason that I don't entirely. I think the movie chooses funny directions for the romance more than consistent directions for the romance. Yeah. Which is a decision I understand. While making it more entertaining to watch does lead to some points being taken off the believability. Yeah, so I might give this like a seven. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Yeah. Do you think either of them are dateable? Look, Puss and Kitty are both fun people. Puss is a blast. He is a Robin Hood adventurer thief. He's a bit of an egomaniac, which a I think bit. is the problem. Kitty, I think, is too suspicious, right? I like her. I like spending time with her in... A movie, but I think she is the type to cut and run. She is someone who would leave you at the altar. Right. Probably multiple times. Yeah. Which then gets to the next question. Do I think Puss and Kitty would stay together? I like to think so. Not really. I think they are the kind of characters that will separate and reunite multiple times. Yeah. I think every movie could plausibly start with them having broken up and getting back together, and it would make sense. Um, If you did have to pick one person in Puss and Boots The Last Wish to date, whom would you choose? A thing I did not think about. Me neither. Um. Hmm. Maybe the seductive senorita at the running of the bulls. Because she was pretty hot. That's good. Yeah. 
Um, not my answer, but I do like, we were talking about all the Pinocchios. There is a good Jiminy Cricket character in this movie. <laughs> Someone just trying to do a Jimmy Stewart voice. Yeah. And like is trying to be the conscience of Big Jack Horner and is just getting demolished. But look, I'm looking at the Wikipedia cast list to jog my memory. And I have here Olivia Coleman as Mama Bear. And that's a phrase that I just have to say I would date. Yeah. She is a criminal. Yeah. But I don't think she's a murderer. And that's where we draw her hard line. That is true. Okay. Uh, I do also want to shout out this movie's use of bleeping out swear words in a children's animated film because it makes me laugh every time. Oh, it my God. It's a cheap laugh and it gets me. You would have liked the guy I was sitting next to. Again, I saw this in a packed theater on December 23rd. And I went with my sister and my aunt. And then sitting next to me were two, like, adults. I would suspect, like, late 30s. Like, man and a woman. And the guy who looked eerily like Harvey Weinstein. Oh, God. (laughs) Which I don't mean as a slander on this person who I've never spoken to, but it was uncanny. Just, like, got really excited anytime there was a reference to Shrek. So, like, when they did a montage that, like, the gingerbread man appeared in. And just cheered, howled with laughter anytime they bleeped something out. Okay, so I'm not that far. It was, like, the most exciting thing that ever happened for him. That's a lot. But when Perito was going through all his nicknames, I did not expect shit for brains to be <laughs> included in the list and to be bleeped out. It's pretty funny. Uh, Will, should this movie be made into a musical? Look, not really. But if you think about, like, how much of Broadway is taken up by adaptations of movies, and, like, frankly, on the Disney side, like, Disney owns a Broadway theater that is just always showing a musical based on a Disney movie. And then also there's another theater showing The Lion King. Yeah. Like, there's worse animated material to make a musical out of. Like, an adventure, like, a quest is a pretty good structure for a musical. Puss is a pretty fun character. They just have to cut out a lot. Pare it down the way we've been talking about. This could be a pretty fun musical. I think it could. I think it would be good for kids, too. You almost think, like... You know, our usual question is like Broadway musical. Like, skip Broadway. Just put this thing into regional theaters right from the drop. Yeah. I think a, a children's Zorro is essentially what we are describing. Yeah. Look, good. <laughs> children's Zorro musical with a cat as the lead. And you're, that sounds great. Look, you've already got a great introductory song with Fearless Hero. Yeah. You're pretty set. Okay. So, not Broadway, maybe a musical. But, Will, it has come, the time has come, to go through our top tens. Okay, so 2022 is done. We're recording this on January 2nd because of the storm that has its own Wikipedia page. So, you know, Mark, how, how do you feel about the year in movies, about your year in movies? Any grand thoughts? Um, This was a pretty good year for comedies. Okay. I think. I mean, nothing like super stellar. But I think that some of the smaller, like, comedies, you know, your Lost Cities, your Fire Islands, both of which will be described more, were very solid. And I don't remember a ton of standout comedies last year. Sure. And then some of these, like, small releases that are mostly on streaming services, they're some really standout ones. Yeah, I feel like this was a year where, like, look, I've got my boring bottom, I've got my, like, top tier... But the movies in the middle, there were a lot where I was like, there's something interesting here. Like, I was really enjoying 
being back in the movies this year. And like, there were points in this year where I was like, is this kind of dull? Like August was a disaster zone for the movies. Like the big releases were beast and bullet train, neither of which I got around to, but it was just like, is this like a chore now? Me insisting on seeing all these new releases and the end of the year, things really picked up. You know, I saw Top Gun again. I saw Avatar. I saw Pinocchio. But then also, it's been good to look back at all this and be like, no, there was like a lot of really good stuff in here that I really enjoyed watching and just like had a good time in a theater with an audience. It's good to be back at the movies. Yeah. And I mean, my number one choice, because I'll probably do alphabetical, but I have a number one, is one of probably the best movies I've seen. And that, again, is Elvis. Yeah, of course, Elvis. A movie that could have been good if it had maintained its extreme level of chaos from the beginning instead of becoming boring having a wife yell out i am your wife i need to tell you now mark that elvis might win best picture it won't it okay it might though i don't think it will i think it's like third or fourth though why elvis liked it you know who likes elvis everybody (laughs) yeah but i don't think people like baz lerman that much So you're right, the Academy has never really gone for Baz. Famously, he was snubbed for Moulin Rouge. But I don't think he's going to win Best Director. I think the movie might win Best Picture. I don't think it will. I don't think it will. I think it is a dark horse contender. I think Austin Butler has a real shot at Best Actor. I think that's true because they f***ing love giving awards to people doing biopics. Yeah. We'll see. Look, I don't love Elvis. What I will tell you is the teens love Elvis. And... It seems to be playing pretty well with Academy members. Why do the teens love Elvis? I don't know. Why do the teens love Elvis? Couldn't tell you. Good lord. Okay. Wow. Anyway, overall, if Elvis wins Best Picture, I don't know what I'll do. You could make a commitment now. I'll remember. Uh, no, I won't. (laughs) I'm too scared of it happening. We are not going to be talking about Elvis today, I assume, but we will on our Best Picture episode in March. So stay tuned for more Elvis thoughts. Okay. So, you know, we always run down our 10 favorite movies of the year. You said you have alphabetical. I have mine ranked. So uh, I think we should just get underway. Do you want to go first or should I? Sure, I could go first. Coming in alphabetically, this one might be on your list, is Banshees of Inishirin. Uh, I have Banshees at seven. A weird movie I really enjoyed. Look, it's great. Poor Jenny. Shout out to Jenny. I was very sad. Big year for donkeys. Um, big year for donkeys. Big year for fingers getting cut off too, actually. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot. I was into it. And I also enjoyed that it took place in a place so remote. The movie could have been set anywhere from like 1750 to 2022, and I probably would have bought it. But it's very specifically set in the early 20s. Yes. Once they said Irish Civil War, I was like, oh, okay, I know where we're at. But before they said that, I was like, I really have no idea what time period this is. I love Martin McDonough when he is in Ireland. Or at least talking about Irish people. Like, in Bruges, great. I love the Lieutenant of Inishmore and the Pillow Man. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, not so much. Yeah. He understands Ireland. He understands Ireland so well. And, like, I just love, like like you said, the isolation of this movie. But also the ways that everyone else is reacting to it, where, like, Brendan Gleeson sees it as this opportunity to really hone his craft, and Carrie Condon is, like, butting up against it. She wants something more. And Colin Farrell is just totally unaware of it because he is so masterfully playing a dumb guy who suspects that he is dumb. 
a dumb guy who is beginning to suspect he is dumb, which I like even more. It's so funny. And is just so focused on being nice. Well, yes, but there's also the incredible scene where he gets the other guy not to come to town by saying that his mother had been hit by a bread truck. <laughs> that was so funny. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about that scene. It's one of the best jokes in the year. It is. <laughs> that's how my dad died. And, like, that's Martin McDonough, where it's funny and it's kind of dark. And when it's good, it's also Irish. Yeah. That's a movie I like a lot. It is streaming on HBO Max, if people have not seen mm-hmm. it. The Banshees of Inishirin. Yeah. Uh, your number 10. Yeah, so I kind of locked in my eight, and then, like, eight other movies kept moving into my nine and ten slots. So this is just what's there right now, and if you ask me in an hour, it might be different. And that's why I can't commit to ranking. Uh, but right now at number 10, I have Nope. Good movie. I gotta watch it again, because I saw it in theaters and was puzzled by it in a good way. But I've really been meaning to go back to it, especially now that it's on Peacock. And I haven't had a chance. In part because my apartment flooded. <laughs> but, like, that movie is so fascinating in the way that it is incredible spectacle. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of about spectacle, the way you have that filmmaker character, and it's shot by Hoyt von Hoytema, and just thrilling story about getting the shot, right? About filmmaking on a basic level. But then also it is about the cost of all that. Yeah, the sacrifice of making a movie right to animals to people you've got this like alien thing that is kind of an eye and kind of a camera and it literally sucks things up and sucks up animals and spits out their blood and Catan is just killing it it's also just a angel from neon genesis evangelion i can't speak to that but i believe you yeah i was i saw it and I was just like, what? And then I looked at the Wikipedia page and it was like, he was inspired by Neon Genesis Evangelion. And I was like, okay, I, I knew that. <laughs> Correct. It's just the thing of like, look, Jordan Peele has made three movies. And Nope is probably the worst one. And it's still just enormously fascinating to dig into and incredible to look at. I easily could have put Nope on my top ten. Um, I knew you would. I mean, it's the kind of thing that I appreciate, that I, like, was going on about three years ago when we talked about us, and I was like, look, I just have a soft spot for, and this is going to show up a lot in my list, I have a soft spot for really successful studio filmmaking. Yeah, me too. Dear listeners, I did game out a little bit this year so we could talk about more movies, because I love movies. I often do that, but didn't this year, so we'll see. All right, so that's my number 10. What's, what's next on your list? Uh, next on my list is Barbarian. A great movie. One of the handful of movies I saw twice in theaters this year. A great movie. Source of a lot more funny jokes than I was anticipating online. It's a comedy! I know. I guess that, but the jokes are not what I was expecting the jokes to be about. No, the funniest joke in Barbarian is when Justin Long, just playing the biggest scumbag, is trying to get some emergency cash by selling his house. And he discovers a horrifying hidden basement. And his reaction is to Google whether he can count that in the square footage. That was so funny. Uh, great movie. It's a movie about the terror of finding your Airbnb has been double booked. I was so uncomfortable at the beginning. And I was like, if this movie was just a horror movie about the social interaction of being in a double booked Airbnb... It would be the scariest movie of the year. And that part is played so well. Like, what I love about Barbarian is it's a movie that 
has like a couple of big and compelling ideas and also just fully understands the idea of like getting out while that idea is still interesting. So like it plays the double booked Airbnb for about 40 minutes. And then that just stops being what the movie is about. It cuts to Southern California and Justin Long driving on the PCH. And it just like keeps shifting what movie it is. It's so good. And I was just like, at the beginning, I was like, well, obviously Billy Skarsgård is a man. So we anticipate him being creepy and he'll be the villain. And maybe he lives in the Airbnb and then he was nice. And I was like, oh, is the twist that she's going to be creepy. And that it was that neither of them were actually creepy. And it was probably a much more realistic version of what would happen in an Airbnb that was double booked where odds are both are just normal people. And then it takes a big twist. It's great. Love Barbarian. Also on HBO. People should check it out. My number nine at this moment is The Northman. That is also on my list. The Northman rocks. This is another movie that I think the trailer does not really prepare you for the kind of movie that it is in a good way. The trailer is just like, here is a Viking epic. And the movie is like, this dude is the dumbest person who has ever lived. He thinks he is in a Viking epic. And he should just shut up and marry Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah, it's really, he's like, I am a hero in a epic. He's like, I am the inspiration for Hamlet. And then he is, like, the land he's fighting over is this barren waste where ten people live there. Right, and he's like, I've got to rescue my mother from my evil uncle. And she's like, no, I hated your dad, he sucked. Your uncle and I are, like, farmers now, leave us alone. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, it is, like, really cool action filmmaking when that's going on. But it's also about, like... You know, the classical idea of fate, how, like, yes, he is fated to do this, but it's because he's told that he has this fate, he then behaves as though that's the case. And over and over again, he has the opportunity to do something different. Yeah, he has the chance to just live a normal life. Also, Bjork's in it. Also, Bjork is in it as a witch. Yeah. So, great. The Northman Rocks, it did not do great at the box office, but is, like, the number one rented movie this year. So it's done really well on demand. (laughs) That's really interesting. Yeah, you can watch it on Peacock, and you should. The Northman is great. I enjoyed it. I'm a huge fan. That's another one I've been meaning to rewatch. It's also pretty. Yeah, it's Robert Eggers. Oh, next is me. I forgot. Okay, I had to put it on here. It was just an extra long episode of Bob's Burgers, (laughs) but it was so entertaining for me. Bob's Burgers, one of my favorite shows. I could watch it forever. The Bob's Burgers movie did what it needed to do for me. It could have done more, but the songs were good. I love that they added the sinkhole to the opening of the new season. The Sunny Side of Life is a song I think a lot about. That's a good song. It's it's currently on my list for my personal Oscar nominations. I loved it. It's not my winner, but it's on my list. It's like... In another year, I could conceivably have Bob's Burgers winning in my personal list, but Pinocchio's just so good. I mean, even on the song list, like, the Turning Red songs are really good. The big opening number of Lyle Lyle Crocodile is pretty amazing. (laughs) Is it really? Mark, the opening sequence of Lyle Lyle Crocodile is Javier Bardem in a sequined suit, singing and dancing with a baby animated crocodile, and Bardem is fully committed. Okay, that actually sounds good. It's pretty great. Lyle Lyle Crocodile, pretty good movie. Wow. Um, Bob's Burgers, I wish I liked more. I found that I enjoyed it for about the length of two Bob's Burgers episodes, and then I was like, don't usually watch more than two at a time. Ah, uh, see, I do binge. Yeah. But a, a nice enough time at the movies. My number eight is Armageddon Time. I don't even know if I've heard of that one. 
So this is, you know, we're in a spate of directors making movies to some extent inspired by their own childhoods. And some of them are really great. And we'll talk about them later on in this. And some of them are Belfast. But Armageddon Time is James Gray's, who directed The Lost City of Z and Ad Astra. And this one is really interesting because of how thorny it is. Where, like, it is, well, inspired by his growing up in Queens in the 80s. But it's about, like, how messy that was. And about, like, sort of the legitimate but shaky privilege of Jewish people in that period. How, like, there are advantages to being a Jewish person versus a black person in that period. Which the movie is really wrestling with. But how his parents very much also feel the stigma of their own identity. And, like, how then because of that they become complicit in anti-black racism. And, like, trying to be a good person and often failing to be a good person. It's a thorny movie, but it's one that I found really fascinating, and I've really liked continuing to think about it. Hmm. So, like, I think there were some negative reactions early on that mostly seemed to be coming from assuming that it was Belfast and that the movie was looking very lovingly on his family, and it's really not. Yeah. It's, like, about the corruption of these ideas. Yeah, that does sound interesting. I really enjoyed it. It also features a, like, one-scene appearance by Jessica Chastain as Marianne Trump, which is... Okay. Well, because James Gray went to the school that the Trumps went to. Oh, and wow. So he, as he's portraying sort of like the rot of 80s America, part of it is like the Trumps were like sort of the local prominent people in Queens. I mean, that works. Yeah. All right. My next one is subject of a lost episode, Fire Island. Hey, that episode turned out good. It did. I just mean one third of the episode was actively lost. Yes. I think it was later recovered, actually. Was it really? Yeah, I think so. Oh, I guess you could put out... I ha- I still have the file. We could put out the full app, but... I'm not going to edit an episode twice. It takes me long enough the first time. I mean, fair enough. But yeah, that was just, again, I really love comedy. A lot of this year had some rough times. Most of my movies are much on the lighthearted side. Fire Island, more than anything to me, and I said this on the episode, is just such a triumph of adaptation. It is. Where it is clearly Pride and Prejudice, but also so clearly its own story. It is how to do an ad- like a modern-day adaptation. Yeah. Okay, Will. What's your next movie? Well, my seven is Banshees of Nishirin, which we already talked about. Yes. So I'm going to throw it back to you. All right. Next for me is, I did not alphabetize my list, so I'm doing some alphabetizing in my head. Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Currently 11 on my list. Shout out to Janelle Monet turning in an amazing performance. What a blast she is. I don't want to spoil it, because it's not been out that long. Glass Onion is on Netflix. It has been there for two weeks. You should watch it. Yes, I agree. But two weeks is not that long. Janelle Monet, like, giving a femme fatale performance is just perfect. This is another movie that I've seen twice, and I do think it rewards repeat viewings. Because I was really struck on my rewatch how little she talks in the first hour of the movie. Like, you feel like she is there as a full character. She barely says anything. Yeah. But she is, a lot of it's the cinematography as well as her acting. They film her perfectly. We talk about this a lot with comedy. We've talked about it with the Peyton Reed movies. But like Ryan Johnson just so fully understands how to use the camera to create comedy. Mm -hmm. I agree. Like it's not just the script, although the script is really funny. The cinematography and the editing of this movie do so much to create the fun that it is watching it. Mm -hmm. This is one that, probably would have been in my top 10 if we'd done this two weeks ago. It fell a little bit for me on a rewatch. I think it'll come up again, just like 
seeing it in a crowded theater was such a high and such I a know, thrill. That's, that's also, I think getting to watch it in a sold out theater was very fun. Yeah. And so then like watching it on a couch where there's like a dog barking and like, you know, all the distractions of like watching it at home, bring it down a little bit. But I imagine it'll settle up somewhere in the middle when yeah. I watch it for a third time. Okay. Next on your list. My number six, which I believe we'll be talking about again, is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. Oh my god, it's so good. I cried. <laughs> it's an incredible, again, connecting back to Fire Island, but like an incredible feat of adaptation. And just stunning. It's gorgeous, yeah. This was a great year for stop-motion animation, where you've got Pinocchio, which very much feels like a major work, right? Like, it is del Toro adapting a story that he's been trying to make for like 10 years. And doing it in stop motion animation. This is another one that I got to see during its brief theatrical run and was really glad for it. Actually, my wife and I had the theater to ourselves, which was fun. But also, like, this year there was a, a Dutch movie that I really liked called Oink about a little girl who adopts a pig that's a nervous pooper. <laughs> There's Phil Tippett's Mad God, which is this stop motion phantasmagoria about a guy descending into, a, like, a subterranean hell. Like, we've been talking about this a lot with Puss in Boots. Like, this does feel like a moment where there is maybe more room for experimentation in animation style. And I'm really excited and hopeful about that. Mm -hmm. And it does feel like Spider-Verse winning the Oscar helped with that. And when Pinocchio probably wins the Oscar, that will hopefully put a little more juice behind stop motion animation. Yeah. It just like more money into it. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, the blue fairy in that movie is just, I, I just looking at the blue fairy is worth the time of the movie and death. Look, when we do our Oscars episode, we're going to have to talk about who we would date from a 2022 movie. Mm -hmm. The death monster from Pinocchio. I found incredibly attractive in a, like a step on me way. <laughs> I mean, just Tilda Swinton is also doing some amazing work. Uh, and don't forget Kate Blanchett as the monkey. I mean, of course. Kate Blanchett plays a monkey with no lines. There's like a couple lines. But like mostly grumbles. Mostly grumbles. And the reason she plays the monkey is because after Nightmare Alley, she asked to be in Pinocchio and Guillermo del Toro as a joke said the only part that hasn't been cast is the monkey. And Kate Blanchett said, I'll do it. That's amazing. Pinocchio is on Netflix. It's amazing. It is an adaptation set very specifically in... I Mussolini's not, Italy. I did not expect it to just be in Mussolini's Italy. I was expecting allegory. Oh, yeah. No, it's very specific. I mean, Mussolini is in it and voiced by Tom Kenny. Yeah. And they sing a song about how Mussolini loves poop. Yes. I mean, it's a very good example of just also, like, pointing out the horrors of fascism while also talking about the absurdity. Yeah. And, I mean... It is just so striking to come out in the same year as Dizemeca's Pinocchio, where they're adapting the same story. There are a lot of the same story beats, but Del Toro has something to say. Yeah, I mean, Del Toro has Pinocchio be singled out as a perfect soldier because he can't die. Yeah. Which I don't think Zemeckis would <laughs> include. Okay, well, yeah, like we said, Pinocchio, it's on Netflix. People should watch it. Don't watch Pinocchio on Disney+. Plus. That's a trap. Unless you watch the 1941, which is good. Yes, okay. Next up on my list is a little film that I forgot came out this year called Kimmy. Hey! That was very good. Kimmy is currently 14th on my list. I don't know anyone besides the two of us who have seen it. 
My wife saw it. We watched it together. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good pandemic movie. Like, it, it tackles it in a good, like, in a engaging way. Oh, my gosh, yes. Where Zoe Kravitz is a person who, it seems like, has already been something of an agoraphobe, but the pandemic has really... Like, really worsened it. Yes. It's one of those movies that exists in a world where the pandemic happened and isn't showy about it. Like, Glass Onion is specifically set on a particular weekend in 2020, and Ethan Hawke has a gun that makes you not get COVID. See, I think that Glass Onion is the movie that has tackled masking the best. Well, yes, because Kate Hudson has a mesh mask. Based off of Lana Del Rey's mask, like a specific pop culture reference. Didn't know that. And then, like, you also learn so much about every other character, like Catherine Hahn having a mask because it's expected of a politician, but her but nose she wears is always wrong. out. Yeah. And then, you know, Daniel Craig matching his mask to his outfit. The scientist is the only one wearing a KN95 that early in the pandemic. It's great. It is, yeah. But Kimmy, like, it's just a great, solid, like, Hitchcocky thriller set in the digital age, right? About what if what if you hear a murder over, like, an Amazon Echo? Yeah, it's rear window, but an Alexa is the person that heard the murder. And it plays so well. And, like, you've got Rita Wilson as one of the most compelling characters of the year. I need to rewatch it. Kimmy's on HBO Max. It's part of Steven Soderbergh's HBO Max deal, which is nothing but hits, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> if I didn't have to watch Return to Oz tonight, I might rewatch Kimmy. I also have to watch Return to Oz tonight. Um, all right. So we're into the uh, five now. So my number five is George Miller's 3,000 Years of Longing. I never got to it. Well, you are like everyone else, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> it is a movie I adore. It is so bananas to me to follow up Mad Max Fury Road with a very expensive movie about Tilda Swinton as a narratologist, someone who studies stories, who then meets a djinn played by Idris Elba, and the two of them sit in a hotel room as he tells her about his life. And it goes through all these periods of like him being out of his lamp and granting wishes and building relationships with people and then he's back in for hundreds of years and then comes out it is just this like lush movie about like deep longing i mean that's that's in the title like but like you know like it's sort of intense passionate like often unrequited love but through this incredible production design the score is fantastic it's a, a junkie xl like mad max fury road it's just one of those movies where you're like, this could only be a movie. Like, you could write a version of it, but it would be so much less compelling than seeing Tilda Swinton in the bazaar in Istanbul, going into a shop and into a room and finding a particular lamp and, like, the stories that it unleashes. Uh, I'll, I will try. <laughs> it's a movie that I love, and I'm really sorry that more people didn't see it, like, Look, I, I will also admit that, like, it does seem like MGM kind of botched that release, but it's a great movie. And Miller will be back because he's got the Furiosa movie coming up. Ah, uh, yes. That is coming soon. Yeah. So he'll be okay. All right. Next up for me is a little movie that is not actually a top 10 movie, but a top 10 movie for me called Lost City, which I just love two movie stars doing Romancing the Stone again. 
but it's funny. Three movie stars, because Daniel Radcliffe is also very funny in it. Daniel Radcliffe just having a great time in life right now. He's the villain of the Lost City. He's going to Broadway and merrily we roll along, and he's quietly done like four seasons of a show on USA or something. TBS. And okay. also he played Weird Al Yankovic. In oh, that's right. Weird. That movie's pretty fun too. I mean, it's predictable but entertaining. <laughs> the Lost City, if you didn't watch it, I think it's streaming on Paramount Plus. Yeah. And it's just a fun time. It is just a good old-fashioned fun time at the movies. And I think at the point where I saw it, it was also exactly what I needed. A good old-fashioned fun time at the movies. Yeah. Anchored by two movie stars being movie stars. Look, I said it back in the spring. This was the year of the movie star. Of just, like, really reminding us that, like, there is a reason that movie stars are movie stars. Like, there is something that gets brought to the table in that. And you get to appreciate that in something like Glass Onion, where you have all these people bringing their histories and their personas to the table. But you also get it through something like The Lost City, where it's truly just people playing their archetypes. It's just exactly their archetype. And there's nothing that unique about it, but it's very funny. Yeah. I don't know. I know it's not a top 10 movie. I just wanted to talk about it, too. Sure. My number four is another movie that I talked about when we talked about that year of the movie star thing. And I hilariously speculated that it might not do well. Uh, my number four is Top Gun Maverick. But you were really saying how little you had hopes for it, I remember. Uh, look, I, I honestly even more was like, this might be good. I just thought people weren't going to go see it. I thought yeah. it was going to be another like expensive movie that people didn't turn out for. And instead, it dominated the entire summer. And like I said, they re-released it in December, and I and many people went to see it. It is, I think, like the platonic ideal of a Hollywood action movie. The action is so clearly filmed and set up. Like, the ultimate mission they go on is built up like a heist movie, where Maverick lays out, here's the mission you need to do, here are all the pieces, and they spend a good chunk of the movie training for that, preparing to do the different pieces. And then the end of the movie is them doing it. And along the way, it's so effectively grounded in character drama and in character relationships. I think it is like a kind of movie that doesn't really get made anymore, executed just at the highest level. Well, just wait for the new Fallout, or not Fallout, Mission Impossible movie. I'm incredibly hyped for the new Mission Impossible movie. I love the Mission Impossible movies, but even they are something different, right? Like, they're Tom Cruise movies, certainly, but, like, Maverick is a movie that, like, is doing, like, the kind of, like, big character relationships that you would get in an action movie of the 80s, where, you know, Mm -hmm. it is going to have him and Jennifer Connelly on a boat while a Lady Gaga song plays. Whereas, like, the Mission Impossible movies, which I love, they're about the 21st century. Like, they're about a world that is a little bit darker, where Ethan Hunt is going to get disavowed in every one of these movies. (laughs) (laughs) And that is funny. Yeah. But, like, ultimately, Top Gun Maverick is a movie that, in a way, is speaking to what I said this entire year is about. Where if the year is about movie stars and kind of the indispensable movie star that's text in top gun maverick because ed harris is the antagonist who wants to shut down a lot of this plane stuff and replace it with drones and maverick is arguing like no like the human in the chair you need that like they're gonna bring something that your drones or maybe your cgi superheroes just cannot replicate yes but also uh, uh, then i have to think about drones (laughs) 
Top Gun Maverick is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. You've probably seen it. It's worth watching again. When he asks to lower the hard deck, it's still funny. When he pulls off that thing in under two minutes, it's still thrilling. Okay, well, Will, my next two movies we've discussed, they are Pinocchio and The Northman. Great movies. So would you take us to your number three and two? My number three, Mark, you know it, I know it. The Way of Water unites all things. <laughs> of course. Avatar The Way of Water, you know, I said this, this is a year where I was excited to be back in a movie theater watching movies with people. And the last great theatrical experience I had this year was watching Avatar The Way of Water. It passed watching Puss in Boots next to Harvey Weinstein. It passed watching Babylon with four other people. <laughs> so I'm not saying the competition was high, but like, I like Avatar a lot. I went to see it when it was re-released in September and it reinforced my appreciation of that movie. I think The Way of Water levels up in some really incredible ways where obviously like the visuals are fantastic. It's an incredible movie to look at. I saw it in IMAX 3D, but also I think the story it's telling is much more complicated where it is frankly, it's not a story of like contact with a different civilization anymore because Jake Sully is just a part of the the group. And they talk a little bit about like one of the interesting threads running through the movie is like what it means to belong in different ways because you have the Navi, but you have different groups of Navi and they don't always mesh as neatly. You have Jake who is not a true Navi. He is a permanent avatar. You have his children with Natiri who are hybrids in their own way. And then also Stephen Lang's Colonel Quaritch is now in the movie resurrected as an avatar. And then you have uh, this character Spider who is a human teen who like wishes he were a Navi. And so you have all these different characters with different relationships to identity and belonging and playing with all that. And it's ultimately like a movie about family and Jake Sully being a bad dad. But along the way, there's incredible action filmmaking. Nobody can sink a ship like James Cameron. You have... Well, that is true. Yeah. And then also, like, people make fun of the Avatar movies because, like, they are archetypes, right? These characters are pretty simple as a way of easing you into a radically different world. Like, it's by design. It also is just part of how James Cameron writes. Like, no one's ever said Billy Zane was a subtle character in Titanic. But it kind of just works, too, right? Where, where James Cameron, in The Way of Water, he can introduce a giant sentient whale... And, like, two minutes after that whale is introduced, like, I would die for that whale. It's amazing. And, I, again, kind of like Top Gun, I think it is just a case of, like, I can't argue with how much this movie worked for me. It was thrilling. It was emotional. And, like, movies are a visual medium, and nothing looked like it this year. Well, yeah. I knew that would be true. Like, I cannot wait to see it again. It's just a matter of finding the time. Um, okay. What was your number two? I'm curious if we have the same number one. I think we do not. Okay. Uh, my number two is... Probably my number one, I'm guessing now. My number two is The Fablements. Oh, no. Okay. I think your number one wound up at like 15 for me. Really? Yeah. We'll talk about it. Um, my number two is The Fablements, which is the new Spielberg movie. The other one, big movie this year, sort of inspired by a filmmaker's growing up. That's leaving Apollo 10 and a half on the side, which is not a movie I love, but it's okay. I think it's easy to scoff at the idea of The Fablements. Steven Spielberg makes a movie about himself growing up and falling in love with making movies. But the movie is not a, like, the magic of cinema kind of thing. It is so complex. And Paul Dano as his dad is maybe my favorite performance the entire year. Because, like, yes, it is about this kid who is, like, incredible at making movies, 
But it's also about how that creates problems for him. It's about how that becomes a barrier between him and relating to other people. And it's it's about this family that's all really that really cares about each other, but is struggling to find the way to properly care about each other. It's a movie that I saw twice in the same week because I just had to go back and see it again. That's after my aborted first time trying to see it when the entire screen was tinted blue and oh, yes. by my parents. I did hear about this. But then when I went to see it, I saw it again immediately that week because it is just like such a rich film in terms of everything it has to say about Spielberg, everything it has to say about like growing up and being a person and being a part of a family. I keep thinking about it in the context of his other movies. You know, I'm on the record as being a huge Spielberg fan. <laughs> I watch his movies all the time. Like, The Failments kind of feels like the key that unlocks it all, but also an incredible movie in its own right. And I just find it enormously exciting. And that's another one that I just want to go see again and again. Hmm. Yeah, I, um, I'm hoping that that also becomes a not $20 rental before the Oscars. I think it is, like, a really special movie. Well, my number one is Everything Everywhere All at Once. I figured it would be. Because it Another is movie I saw twice in theaters. Everything I need from a movie. Michelle Yeoh laughs, cries. Uh, Rocks. Resurrection of a career. Deidre Bobeidre. <laughs> Deidre Bobeidre. It's just, I mean, I feel like everyone said everything about the movie already. There's nothing new I can add, but... If you haven't seen it, come on. Yeah, it's a huge hit. It might win Best Picture. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. Kihu Kwan is probably going to win Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, I think so. Which is great. He's probably, he like, I said Dano's my guy. He's probably my number two. Yeah. I think he'll win, though, because he oh, has yeah, a better he's, story. He's, he's got a narrative that can't be beat. And yeah. people love that movie. Ugh. It's a movie I really like, too. You know, it is maximalism on screen. It is throwing everything there is at it. <laughs> it is. And piling it on top I of a I love it. The reason it, like, fell down is not because of, like, anything against the movie. There are just other movies that I loved more as the year went on. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, I saw it twice in March. And everything that's ahead of it is something that I saw more recently. So, like, Jackass Forever also fell down my list. And I <laughs> thought that might have gotten into my 10. But that's that's a really cool movie. And it's really cool to see a movie like that be a financial success and mm-hmm. a critical success. Did you see that Jobu Tupaki was named one of the most stylish people of 2022 by the New York Times. I did not, but I love it. Not the actress, the character. That is right and proper. Yes. I love it. It made so much money, too. It was a huge success. That's And, like, a word-of-mouth success. Yeah. So, like, to me, like, it is a part of this, like, exciting, successful year at the movies. Where, like, yes, like, there were some Marvel movies that you could take or leave, depending. But, like, look, the Batman movie was, like, legitimately good and made a lot of money. You got Top Gun, which, against all odds, was, like, as far as I'm concerned, a great film. You got Avatar doing great. You got Everything Everywhere all at once. Like, a big narrative that you might not be aware of is, like, the art house movies underperforming. That 3,000 Years of Longing and She Said and Mm -hmm. My Number One, which we'll get to in a second, did not do as well as we might have hoped. But I don't read this box office as, like, only franchise movies can be huge. Yeah, I mean, A24 got their first $100 million movie. So, like, there is space for other kinds of movies to succeed, and that is exciting. On top of, like, this movie is weird in a great way. Mm-hmm. It's and ex- if you are a big I fan of weird. Everything Everywhere All at Once, you should watch Daniel's previous movie, Swiss Army Man. Because talking about also Daniel good. Radcliffe being a little weirdo, he yeah. plays a corpse in that one. Also a good movie. So, what was your number one? 
My number one, as far as I'm concerned, is the movie of the year. And that's Tar. Oh, yeah. Tar is the movie about Kate Blanchett playing an orchestra conductor named Lydia Tar. And it is effectively about her cancellation. Well, she was bad. Oh, oh yes, she was bad. Uh, have you seen Tar? You have not. Not yet. It was $20. I was sure. prepared. I cleared my sca- schedule, but I did not have room in my wallet. Like, it's Todd Field's first movie in like 16 years. And you watch the movie, and it is just like so carefully studied in terms of all of the little ways that you see her unraveling and you see this sort of house of cards that she has built collapsing around her. It's a movie that I haven't gotten to see again, but I really want to. Might go see it tomorrow. And Blanchett is just an absolute force in it. There's this scene that's a wonner of her doing, like, a guest lecture at Juilliard that is so thorny, and it becomes a centerpiece to the whole movie, but you're just watching capital A acting in an incredibly engrossing way, but also, like, everything the movie is about is right there in that scene. I think it's probably, like, the most confident piece of filmed entertainment that I saw this year. And it's so dense and also really funny. Like, it's easy to imagine this movie being really serious. But it's got a lot of jokes, and it basically ends on a joke. And uh, I love Tar. I love the fact that a woman, I believe at the cut, got paid to write an article about how she saw Tar and then was mad when she got out and discovered it was fictional. (laughs) Which then gave rise to the running joke on film Twitter that Lydia Tar is a real person who wrote, directed, and starred in a movie about herself. Tar. The movie does establish that Lydia Tar is an EGOT. So, Mark, when we do our Oscars episode, I will expect your thoughts on how Lydia Tar got her EGOT. I mean, most EGOTers are composers. That's true. But I, I look forward to your thoughts. We will also get to talk about Tar again because Bradley Cooper has made a movie about her instructor, Leonard Bernstein. Maestro will be out this fall. So, get hyped for a year of Tar. Will this. 93 most stylish people list is chaotic because the spotted lantern fly is on it. Good. <laughs> Love it. I was so confused because I'm just looking at the pictures. Joe Butupaki, also not the only character. Yeah, anybody else good? Uh, Two of the people from the Los Spookies okay. are on it. Paul Dano's Riddler, I assume. Trench coats and gas masks are in. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised based on this list. Deborah Vance from Hacks is on it. I mean, she's a style icon for sure. Yes, I love it. All right, well, we have been recording for like two hours, so we should probably wrap things up. Uh, Next week, we are finally discussing Mortal Engines. (laughs) The day has come. (laughs) The day has come. Municipal Darwinism is upon us. Please get ready. Uh, I think it's on HBO, so check out Mortal Engines. It rocks. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify to help other people find the show. All right. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice from the movie we watched this week, Puss in Boots, The Last Wish? Um, be honest with people about what you need. Don't just cut and run when something's not working. I think Puss in Boots does in the flashbacks and during the movie. Yes. Also, if you are afraid of death, talking about it with your partner is a great way to, you know, address the issue. As we learned from It Follows last year, love and sex are what keep death away. Wow. So true. Until next time, I'm gay. 
And I'm a ginger, so between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about Rome. Bye. Bye. Who is your favorite fearless hero? Who is your favorite fearless hero? Who's brave and ready for trouble? Ha <laughs> ha! Who's so unbelievably humble? Who is your favorite fearless hero? Who is your favorite fearless hero? Who's the gata who rolls the dice? Who gambles with his life? Who's ever been touched by a blade? Who's in boots is never afraid?